Hello, and welcome to Androids and Assets. I'm Stephen. And I'm Marshall. And we are, well, Marshall, should you, can you start by maybe telling us what we do on this year podcast? Sure. Uh, so we, uh, we talk about uh, the political economy uh, of science fiction and fantasy, uh, generally. So looking at uh, yeah, how societies are structured and how their, their economies and wealth and power is distributed in those. So, you know, if you got a, you got a society with some weird stuff in it, uh, in your book, we want to read that and talk about it. And speaking of uh, societies with weird economies and weird social and power relationships, we have a great guest with us today, uh, Corey Doctorow. Hi, Corey. Well, hi, thank you. I was just thinking, boy, like you could subtitle this, Where are the Peasants of the Shire? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have talked about that. <laughs> no, they're, no, they're all bourgeois landowners. You see, <laughs> right? Yeah, that, in, in leather and leather aprons, you know, energetically trading artisanal mustache back and forth. Exactly, that's all they yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind it's that there's a guy who Portland, it's Portland, Oregon, with dragons, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and there's still a big man with a house on the hill. Let's well, or in yeah. the hill, I guess is the case, maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who's idle and can go on adventures in other places. Somehow. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, can you just tell us a little bit of, about yourself, uh, Corey? Sure. I'm a science fiction novelist and writer uh, and activist. Uh, I'm one of the owners of the website Boing Boing, and I'm a special consultant to a nonprofit called the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Campaigns on uh, electronic issues, uh, starting with privacy and surveillance and, and free speech, but lately expanded into an issue that intersects a great deal with this, which is uh, uh, competition, uh, and so there, my work takes on a, a highly, uh, you know, kind of science fiction adjacent form of work, and uh, spending a lot of time trying to convey to people what technology landscape we might have in the event that we had chosen to continue enforcing pre-Robert Bork, pre-1980 um, antitrust and competition law, and and what role competition law played. In reducing the web to five giant websites filled with screenshots of the other four, uh, and, and how that can be distinguished from kind of quasi mystical theories of uh, first mover advantage and network effects and so on. But kind of if they if they are just positive, then it, it doesn't really explain why all those tech companies that had network effects and all the rest of it um, had uh, had had failed to attain the kind of monopoly that we see uh, from from GAFAM, the big five. I just want to pick your brain about this AWS Pentagon controversy for like forever. Oh, I mean, well, you know, you can just sort of say, like, you can explain that in a really shorthand, which is that um, highly concentrated industries are really good at capturing their regulators because they are less apt to defect and they can divert some of their monopoly rent into lobbying for expanded procurement. And so over time, uh, highly concentrated industries will convince government agencies to buy more services from them that they don't need at higher prices, <laughs> uh, and then use some of the money to lobby those government agencies to spend more. And, you know, the Pentagon being the largest employer in the world with an economy larger than the Soviet Union in 1989 is kind of a, a good example of, of exactly how that happened. Yeah, I mean, case in point, uh, Lockheed Martin, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, and I'm speaking to you from, from Burbank, right? The town of Lockheed. Oh, so, nice, uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I we have a Lockheed jet in one of our public parks, just sort of stuck on a giant screw, like it was a like it was a model that scaled up. Um, 
you know, when we bought our house, we, we got a letter from the, from the city saying, by the way, uh, Lockheed left a whole bunch of uh, fuel depots and, like, carcinogenic uh, oh, soil yeah. residue behind when they when they left the city, but they left with the fund to clean it up. So, like, if your lawn gives you cancer, let us know, and we'll give you, we'll, we'll dig up your dirt and give you new stuff. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Holy shit, that's dystopic. Yeah, it's nice living in a company town. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, fair enough. Okay, so I guess we'll just like we just got some questions, and we'll just we'll just lay them down for you. And uh, sure, and yeah, we're gonna. I think we're mainly gonna be talking about uh, two of your recent books, um, your collection of novellas. I believe the the compilation's called Radicalized, correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and also uh, your 2017 book, Walk Away. It's it's Walk Away, yeah. not the Walk Away, right? It's, it's Walk Away, and I should mention that you know, albeit that Radicalized is kind of a a work about a fashion left wing polemic. It was also one of the Wall Street Journal's books of the year, so make what you will of that. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know. Maybe they they also want to see billionaires shit themselves to death. So, or yeah, I think it's I think it's uh, class solidarity among rights. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I love that so much. Anyway, uh, anyway, let's uh, yeah. So we'll just jump in, I guess. Uh, Marshall, do you have a question sure. on 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 deck or? Uh, well, so like you said, radicalized is is like. Just a, like when you read it, it's it's a strong left wing uh, well, polemic, uh, and uh, but it's still very science fictional. So so what makes economics important to the genre of science fiction for you? Well, I guess there's a couple of, of important ways of uh, thinking about economics in its relationship to, to narrative and science fiction specifically. So you know, writ large, economics is of course the study of like why people do stuff and. You know, that's not a terrible definition of fiction, right? Uh, you know, we, we sometimes break fiction into science fiction and not science fiction. But in some really important sense, every work of fiction is a work of science fiction because every work of fiction pretends that you can know what another person is thinking. <laughs> and that's something that no one in the history of the world has ever done, right? Telepathy is like, telepathy is science fiction, or maybe fantasy. But it's definitely not real. And yet, you know, it is this, like, uh, omnipresent feature of all fiction. And, you know, if you're going to say, well, I, I know what someone else is thinking, that's another way of saying, I understand why they did that. And that's another way of saying, I am an economist. So, you know, <laughs> to that extent, right, you are, like, like economics and fiction are intimately related. And then, you know, oftentimes, um, economics like to dress up normative statements as uh, observations of, of, of uh uh, objective reality and or as a prediction of kind of social inevitability, right? You know, think of that as the tale of moral hazard, right? The, the idea that give people welfare and they'll become lazy uh, is a, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it, 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 it is often dressed up with math, mm-hmm. uh, but it is ultimately a normative statement. And oftentimes the tales that we use to justify this are drawn from fiction. You know, obviously, like, there's Ayn Rand, right? And, and mm-hmm. her outsized impact on the world. Uh, there's uh, Harry Seldon and the, uh, the um, foundation novels by Asimov, which, you know, Paul Krugman cites as a reason to become an economist, which, you know, I'm generally pretty pretty good, pretty big on, on Krugman's work. But I think that, like, if you became an economist because you thought that the future could be predicted and shaped for thousands of years, <laughs> then that's, you know, like, God help us if you ever get your hands on the levers of power, right? You know, by, you know, keep that guy as a New York Times columnist, please. Like, don't, don't let him become a central banker. Um, 
you know, uh, and, and then, you know, uh, more importantly, I think in the context of today's, uh, most pressing pol- political and economic challenges is the, um, story about what people do in disasters. And this really digs into what I do in Walk Away. We have a recurring fictional motif that in disasters, uh, the true bestial nature of humanity is revealed, right? When, when bad things happen, your neighbors come and eat. And, uh, and in particular, the poors come and eat their social life. Uh, and this is like an ironclad feature of disaster stories. Yeah. It's also, as far as we can tell, empirically totally untrue, right? Uh, that, that, you know, books like Rebecca Solnit's Paradise Open Hell, and Solnit, you know, although she's known for coining the term mansplaining and, uh, for the women in the audience, mansplaining is when a man explains to you that you already know, uh, you know, Solnit is, is, is actually like even more important as a historian. And she is a celebrated and talented historian. And Paradise Hills in Hell is a closely researched, beautifully told series of histories using um, primary documents, contemporaneous first-person accounts from disasters, of how disasters are the moment in which people rise to the occasion and express solidarity. And uh, that story doesn't get told very often, in part because it lacks dramatic tension. You know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be a pulp writer, which is what science fiction is all about, then you have to be willing to, uh, you know, uh, to like pull around the plot. And, you know, there are these two basic plots, man against man and man against nature. And if you're writing one of these stories where a tsunami knocks your house down and then your neighbors come over to meet you, then you get like a twofer, man against nature against man. Hmm. And that kind of cheap narrative gimmick has an important impact to go back to economics. In behavioral economics, we talk about the availability heuristic and the idea that people systematically overestimate the probability of things that they can vividly imagine um, and that they irrationally insure themselves against them. Um, so, you know, an example of that might be people putting a lot of energy into uh, preventing their kids from being uh, kidnapped by strangers, which is an incredibly rare occurrence. We're here in the U.S. where I live, People spending a lot of time worrying about school shootings, which are, you know, infinitely horrific and terrible, but are a rounding error on the, the uh, gun deaths in this country. If you get shot, the chances are that it's your finger on the trigger, uh, either accidentally or on purpose. And if it's not your finger, the chances are that it's a relative, again, either accidentally or purpose with someone you know well. And so if we were going to really prepare kids against uh, gun fatalities, our emphasis would be on, like, the next time you're at a friend's house and they say, do you want to see my dad's gun? You should leave that house right away and call your parents and not go back until they have a chance to talk with your friend's parents about how they're handling their the firearm. Yeah. Um, and yet, we spent all our time on lockdown drills. And so the upshot of all of that is that if you read a bunch of fiction in which disaster is turned into catastrophe by, uh, you know, uh, socially inferior types uh, turning into an unruly mob the minute the lights go out, then when disaster arises or when disaster preparation is underway, you will overemphasize extremely low probability risk at the expense of actual, uh, um, you know, uh, high necessity recovery techniques, right? Like getting the sewage running again is way more important than keeping your neighbors from raiding your luxury bunker for your gemstone quality uh, roof, you know? Um, and, and, you know, to the extent that we can write fiction that changes the story that we find easiest to Im- imagine 
when we imagine bad things happening, we can do well. And to the extent that we fail to do that, we see the rise of uh, doctrines like ecofascism, which, you know, began with a bit of storytelling. Uh, 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 Derek Harden, you know, the, uh, the guy who wrote The Tragedy of the Commons, which is this, you know, profoundly ahistoric, non-evidence-based bit of counterfactual garbage about how commons were managed. Um, that, uh, you know, Grant Harden and, and his successors conceived of this eco-fascist doctrine that says that the way that you manage uh, resource contention and climate change basically by exterminating the ground people. And, you know, um, uh, eco-fascism is the doctrine that was espoused by the Christchurch killer and by uh, the Norwegian mass shooter, uh, Brevik, and, and so on. Um, and so, you know, like there are like real life and death consequences to bad science fiction. You know, not merely all the people that Margaret Thatcher killed with austerity uh, because she read too much uh, Ayn Rand, but also, you know, these, these um, you know, uh, uh, really ghastly outcomes. Mm, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. like, yeah, because I mean, I, I remember reading Walkaway this week because I read it in a hurry uh, uh-huh. and, and being like, where was this book when I was spending all of those late nights? having asinine fucking dorm room arguments with people about is our people fundamentally good? Are people fundamentally bad? That's right. Like, and, and that is the level, like that is the level of discourse we have in like the New York times or sure. in the parliament. Like, and it's, it makes me feel like I'm gone insane. <laughs> like, well, and I think that like we can build systems that uh, elevate people's worst natures and we can build systems that elevate people's best yeah. natures. And that we all have a mix of those, and that the systemic parameters have a lot more to do with how those get expressed than the, uh, the endogenous, you know, uh, uh, proclivities of each person in the yeah. system. Yeah, because I mean, like, so speaking of behavior, like, when I was reading Walkaway, all I could think of was Walden 2. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, and, and I mean, Skinner features very prominent, I mean, I guess liminally, but... But I think conceptually, behaviorism uh, features quite prominently in that book, textually. Uh, yeah. And, and I guess, I guess, building to a question in all this, <laughs> um, yeah, like, like is, that, is that there? Where, where, do, where are we supposed to land on behaviorism? Because it's like, on the one hand, it's very behaviorist. Uh, like, it's kind of like Walden 2, except the managers are the computers instead of people. You know? And like, well, okay. So I, I'm not a necessarily believer in behaviorism, but like back to behavioral economics, I'm a great believer in um, uh, uh, Ulysses Patch, right? Where you, uh, you know, where you know that you're going to be weak in the future, but you're feeling strong now. So you take some action that is irrevocable, that prevents your your weaker self from overruling the desires of your stronger self. The canonical example is you throw away the Orient that I can go on a diet. and, you know, this is this is aimed for Ulysses, who stuffed his ears, or he didn't want to stuff his ears with wax, so he went through the fire and sea, and so he had himself slashed the net. And what these folks are doing in in Walkaway, where they build these fully automated luxury communist resorts that use software to direct their labor so that they can harmonize their labor, so that they can work in concert, you know, back to uh, economics, so they can, they can do a kind of Ronald Coatean thing in which they are able to lower their coordination costs in order to build more with less um, institutional infrastructure and, and with, with more retained individual autonomy, is that they um, get together and they decide in advance what the rules of the game are going to be. 
and then they semi-irrevocably embody those rules in code, right? Not not fully, because it's, you know, it's free open source software that can change the rules, but then they also have like a deliberative process that has a high bias towards the status quo, so that once they set the rules up and agree that the rules are fair, they set about building these luxury resorts, but if they find that it's not working, there is a mechanism to convince people to alter the rules to make it work better. No, thank you. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of, um, like, I think that beha- with behaviorism, as with many other kind of technologies, if you want to call it that, we overemphasize what the technology does and yeah. underemphasize who it does it for and who it does it to. Yeah, and, that, and that's, and, you yeah, know, that, that, and that's the anecdote. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, sorry. I apologize. Uh, but that's the anecdote you no. give in Walk Away about the pigeons and everyone sees themselves as the experimenter. And not the pitches. Right. Yeah. And not the pitches. And you know, like, there are lots of people, myself included, who are okay with being the pigeon, right? Like, when I quit smoking, I used a whole range of behavioral, psychopharmacological, and other interventions to allow a thing that I wanted to do to be fully manifested. And I was, I, I occupied this strange role of being the experimenter and the pigeon at the same time. And, you know, there's like a, a great move towards this and the kind of self-experimentation uh, uh, movement, elements of which are very, you know, kind of kooky uh, or toxic, but some of which is really good, you know, like, it just, you know, they, they won't know thyself on the side of the Greek temple for a reason, right? And like, yeah. you know, figuring out what it is you need to do in order to live your best life, you know. Like, I work better in the morning. I'm going to get up an hour early. If I stay up late, all I do is watch mindless TV. I'm going to go to bed early. Like, those are all experimenter and subject in one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. Uh, Marshall, do you have anything? Or? Uh, not, not, not necessarily about... Uh, well, so, I guess, is, is walk away something that we can actually do? You know, it's funny. I so walk away, like, to kind of flesh out what's the book is about for people out there. Um, you know, it's a it's a novel about um, a an environmental apocalyptically blighted world in which automation has largely obviated the need for most workers, and in which we've decided not to create redistributive policies that would allow for these sort of economically inert individuals to uh, consume the the products of the robotic factories. And so these these people who have decided not to, you know, despite the fact that, like, the spreadsheets say that they're socially useless, that they are informed by a deep intuition that they would not like to dig a hole, crawl in it, and then pull the dirt in on top of themselves, they instead just pick up and leave. They, they, they walk away from civilization. They go to a blighted brownfield site. They use stolen UNH, uh, UN High Commission Refugee Software, and homemade drones to scour the countryside for ruins left behind by climate change, and then they survey them, uh, catalog them, and automatically come up with designs for fully automated luxury communist resorts, which they build and occupy. And this and this makes for a kind of um, delightful demimond on the fringes of mainstream society, where you know fashion designers and cool hunters can go and like find great ideas. Uh, and so they have a kind of equilibrium. And also they serve as almost an escape valve until the moment at which um, the scientists who live among the super rich 
make a foundational breakthrough in a project to create uh, practical immortality. And the um, uh, super rich uh, are now on the verge of speciating from the rest of us, becoming sort of infinitely prolonged men like God, while the rest of us disappear in their rearview mirrors like mayflies. And uh, these scientists steal their own ideas, their own research, and they take it to the walkaways because they don't want to be complicit in that. And when the super rich realize that, no, they're going to have to spend eternity with us, and we're all going to live forever, that's when the hellfire missiles. And, um, it, you know, the, the walkaway is a, a, a protracted thought experiment slash pyramid about different ways of, of organizing labor, about automation, about the, you know, kind of uh, mental correlate of a system oriented around greed and the mental correlates of the system oriented around solidarity. Uh, and, you know, as a thought experiment, it was really fun to write. But I'm actually working on another novel that's somewhat of a rebuttal of Walk Away. Uh, it's a, a novel set after a successful Green New Deal called The Lost Cause. And it's a book about truth and reconciliation with the people who were so doctrinaire that they denied climate change and did everything they could to obstruct uh, productive measures to avert it, but who failed. And what do you do? with the people who are manifestly on the wrong side of a just revolution, especially when those people are the only people living in what is otherwise utopian society who think that they're living in a dystopia and are going around, you know, masturbating in their copies of the Turner Diaries and blowing up solar panels. Uh, and the thing that, that struck me as the Green New Deal and other visions like it began to infiltrate my imagination is that the fully automated luxury communism and the idea of automation as, as doing away with labor is a form of climate denial. Mm -hmm. That what we are confronting is between one and five centuries of full employment for every human being that will live between now and the time at which climate change is fully remediated, in which any automation that frees people from existing labor obligations only allows more labor to go into tending to the ill from pandemics fighting the wildfires, building the dikes, relocating the low-lying cities, and doing the other important work that climate change will demand of us. And so, you know, your question, can we have a walkaway society? Well, we can have a society organized on those principles, but all it would do is free up labor to remediate hundreds and hundreds of years of, uh, of, of uh, at first, uh, um, ignorant and then deliberately reckless uh, carbon emission um, that that has put us at the brink of a, an extinction level event for our species. Yeah, I mean, you say like all it would do. That sounds like an excellent <laughs> yeah. thing for it to do. Well, sure, <laughs> that's it. You know, but there's this, there's, you know, I mentioned Keynes before. There's a quote I can never get it right exactly, but there's a quote where he, he imagines that if the economy were an adulterant, you could pay half of the unemployed to dig a hole and the other half to fill it in. Yes, and yes, yeah. You know, what we're effectively confronting over the next several centuries is the reality that our ancestors spent about 200 years digging all the carbon out of the ground, and that we're going to spend the next 400 years putting it back. A very prescient, uh, prescient yeah. prediction from Keynes. Well, and, and you know, if you're a believer in like modern monetary theory and kind of neo-Keynesianism, and you think that's how we're going to mobilize the resources to do it, it's like it's a very neat parable, right? Because, well, what do we do? Well, we'll have state spending and then some way to sequester that spending uh, so that it can be directed towards full employment for climate.
climate remediation without runaway inflation. So we'll, you know, we'll have war bonds, we'll have rationing, we'll do other things that kind of, um, that, that, uh, keep the new dollars being flushed into the economy in service of mobilizing resources to fight climate from, uh, chasing the same resources that are needed to fight climate, thereby setting off an inflationary spot. Okay. Well, well, I, for one, am very excited for, uh, that book to come out and, uh, you know, the, and the, the Jason Kenny, I assume it's some sort of like half Jason Kenny biography. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the, what the what do you do with Jason story. Kenny? When? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a Canadian. I didn't Jason Kenny. Yeah, there. <laughs> who, who wouldn't know who Jason Kenny is after all the damage that <laughs> dickhead is responsible oh, for? Gosh. And in such a it's sh- like not knowing your joke of Stalin or full awkward. <laughs> oh, yeah, excellent. Man. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I like your program anyway. I think that's I think that's pretty much. Thank you. Yeah, you, you, Doctor O, Doctor O for President, twenty twenty. Uh-huh. You, you throwing I your hat in here? <laughs> I, I I wasn't born here. That's I, right. I you're Canadian. Remember. Oh yeah, you can't be president. Yeah. 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 I'm also not a citizen yet. I will be in a year. But okay. uh, yeah, no, I, I, uh, no, I can't. fair enough. So if we move on to uh, move on to radicalized. Uh, yeah. So there's there's four short shortish stories in there. Um, I don't know how long they technically are, but uh, so you've got uh, unauthorized bread, which is the story of uh, like a community in in a tenement building, uh, like fighting back against corporate um, IP, yeah, cor- corporate regime. control of their appliances. Yeah, they're fighting with their appliances. Uh, yeah, you have, you have, <laughs> it's maximum overdrive all over again. Yeah. You have uh, radicalized, where there's uh, like domestic terrorism against like the like healthcare yeah. in the insurance industry, like not not healthcare, but like healthcare insurance. Yeah, privileged, privileged white dudes who watch their uh, the people they love best in the world be sentenced to lingering, painful, grotesque death because insurance executives decide not to pay for the treatment that insure them uh, are radicalized in underground message boards and becoming suicide bombers in healthcare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then model minority, is, you have a superhero who sort of recognizes uh, the systemic racism that he's been helping to prop up for, uh, you know, five, quite, five quite a long time, uh, and then starts to fight against it, but finds that he's not quite up to the task. Well, and, and moreover, he has to confront the systemic nature of racism, right. which, you know, is like, it's actually pretty key to the, uh, to the story of Superman, you know, conceived of by uh, two Jewish kids in New York. One of them a Torontonian, my friends used to live on Joe Schuster Way, oh, wow. uh, who watched with, with mounting horror, you know, the, the rise of Nazism across the Atlantic, and who conceived of a golem, right? Uh, an all-powerful man of steel who will individually and personally interpose himself between Nazis and the world. And of course, that's not how Nazism was defeated. It's like the opposite of how Nazism was defeated. It, it had nothing to do with the unitary heroic individual. Rather, it was the largest collective action problem we ever solved as a species. And, uh, and, and, you know, the individualistic account of racism and anti-racism is the, one of the great, uh, problems with, between us and making meaningful change in racism, mm-hmm. right? Like the individual account is like, mm-hmm. I am not a racist, therefore I am not responsible for racism. Right. Uh, or that person is a racist, therefore, if we could get him to stop being racist, racism will stop too. And, you know, the, the deep embedded systemic problems of racism are so much more salient 
than the choices of individuals, except to the extent that those individuals are choosing to work together um, and, and work together specifically to enact systemic reform. Yes. Uh, yes. And yeah, it will, like, you, you can't punch racism, right? Like it's, uh, yeah. Like, well, you can't punch you can. racism. You just can't defeat it by punching, <laughs> right? Right, right. You know, yeah. you, 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 you might be able to hold it in check, right? Like, and I'm all for, you know, like, Schindler was a hero, right? Sure. Schindler was definitely a hero, and I would mm-hmm. rather have an Oscar Schindler than no Oscar Schindler. But Oscar Schindler, on his own, could not and did not stop it. Yeah. No. no right? Sure. All he did was, was put a Band-Aid over it. Yes. And, and, and the last story is Mask of the Red Death. Where you have a like a, a an ultra rich guy who uh, builds his his like luxury bunker for when his luxury uh, his luxury space capitalism bunker. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, luxury space capitalism uh, to to wait out what he thinks will just be like a short term disaster that is definitely coming with you know thirty of his closest friends. Yeah, yeah, his vision is that like when disaster strikes, he can you know power in the luxury bunker and and wet the bed. While better people than him rebuild civilization, and then when it ends, he can emerge with his sharpshooters with their AR-15s and his thumb drives full of Bitcoin, and that he can become like kind of a Frazetta warlord and acquire a harem and you know assume his rightful place at the top of the heap. And what he fails to appreciate is that you can't shoot germs. Speaking of things you can't touch, <laughs> right. germs are things that no. you cannot shoot, uh, and uh, no amount of uh, of AR-15 will save you from a mass human die-off that triggers pandemic, uh, um, uh, you know, waterborne illnesses and, and other illnesses. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, so, hmm? uh, yeah, and that's and that's the kind of like we were talking earlier with like the the miss really over preparing and under preparing in exactly inverse yeah. relationships. Yeah, absolutely, and and you know. And, and misallocating resources to put it in economic jerk, mm-hmm. right? Like there's there's just no, uh, you know, like there we cannot scale individual luxury bunkers full of powdered milk up to um, a civilization preserving number. And now, if you're an eco fascist, that's a feature, not a bug, right? If you're an eco fascist, it's like great, we get rid of four or five billion people and restore to its quote unquote carrying capacity and. Uh, you know, if you believe the just so story of um, uh, of, of uh, you know capitalism and, and market's ability to elevate the good people and and you know put the bad people where they belong, or as Boris Johnson once said in a talk that he gave to the city uh, to the to, to a bunch of bankers in London, um, you know capitalism is like a box of cornflakes, and when you shake the box part, the big cornflakes go to the top, and the little cornflakes go to the bottom. Mm. You know, basically that's why you're There's so rich. Scientific. And so if you believe that story, then all the people who have the money to build luxury bunkers are the people who should survive. The way you know is that they have enough money to build luxury bunkers. Yes. And so not only do you get rid of people who are exceed the Earth's notional carrying capacity, but the people that you get rid of, it's not a, not a random sample. It's all the socially useless people who didn't have the wherewithal to make a lot of money being financial plumbers <laughs> and, you know, use it to, to get out of their bunker. It's like, uh, it's like in, in Ayn Rand, um, Atlas shrugged when yeah. you, when you get uh, yeah, they have their paradise that they make where all the all the CEOs don't come into work one day and they all fuck off to their utopia and then yeah golf yeah. gulch yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 there's like I would I would love to see how that place would function because yeah 
Well, I wrote a story about this called The Martian Chronicles. I wrote a series of stories that have become sort of the famous stories. Uh, I, Robot, and True Name, and so on. Hmm. And My Martian Chronicles is about a colony ship, the second colony ship to go to Mars. It's a private colony ship with super rich libertarians. And they are leaving the Earth to leave behind the lesser people and go golf on a world of their own. And halfway into the journey, when their radio comms switch from primarily being run on Earth to primarily being run on Mars, they discover that they're being sent to be the janitors. <laughs> and that the people who are already there, the other libertarians who went there first, are reasoning like, well, you know, um, we have, we took the greater risk. We came here before them. You know, it's, it's only natural that these people who show up in a world that we own, right, in this Lockean sense, right? We came to Paranelia. We mingled the soil with our labor and thus acquired a property interest in it. Um, so, you know, you don't expect to just get property for free. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Everyone knows that. <laughs> so it, when you get it. here, you're going to be indentured. Oh, uh, that's fantastic. That's yeah. amazing. So, so of these of these four stories, um, it felt like other than maybe in Mask of the Red Death, it when the story finished, I sort of felt like like we, we the people, had sort of lost. Hmm. Like, uh, in Mask of the Red Death, you know, the story ends and you're like, yeah, collective action really was the only thing that allowed. Right. But, no, but the I rest of them... I don't think of, that's true of unauthorized bread, right? Unauthorized bread is a story about people who seize the means of computation, attain technological self-determination through solidarity, and, and back, you know, uh, giant, remorseless, hedge fund-backed corporation. Yeah. So long as they have somebody on the inside who can, like, yeah, feed them the information. I guess, yes. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, it's a story, like, you know, look at the tech lash, right? You know, not to, not to get all overwhelmed on you, but if there is hope, it is in the pool, right? <laughs> the fact that, like, tens of thousands of Google workers walked out last year yeah. over unethical conduct by their, by their bosses, Inspiring. And, you know, hmm? it's inspiring. It is. And it tells you that we have more in common with tech workers, that tech workers themselves are part of the solution. Right? They may also be part of the problem, but they're definitely part of the solution. Certainly. We have to bring them along. With them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, so as I long mean, as, as that, there's, a, there's a great um, China Mabel, mostly a fantasy writer, he's also a Marxist. He wrote this novelistic history of the, of the Russian Revolution of October. And in the run-up to the revolution, there were these rebellions, and they were put down by Cossacks. But the Cossacks eventually threw their lot in with the revolutionaries, and they began to work to rule. And so, like, there, there are a couple of notorious incidents. One where they were off, they were ordered to make a cavalry charge into a group of protesters. And so they formed up a single file line on their horses, and then they walked the horses alongside the body of protesters with their, you know, with their weapons out just slowly alongside of them. They went back to their officers and said, you know, one cavalry charge is ordered, sir. And then at another time, they were ordered to hold a line so that the protesters couldn't get past them to, I think, the Winter Palace or something. And so they formed up their horses in a line and then held the horses motionless as the protesters crawled between the horses' legs. <laughs> and they went back to their officers and they said, as ordered, we did not move, sir. That's... Right? So, you know, Solidarity is the key to victory. Right. Yes. So as long as, uh, what's her name? Why? Uh, why? Yeah. She's named after a Heinlein character. Oh. Uh, from, from The Moon of the Harsh Mistress. From, that's the novel where there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Right. 
Uh, so as long as she recognize, like as long as she identifies more with the people in the building than than with uh, the the tech company. Yeah, and you know, ultimately, like you know, my bankler talks about this a lot. You know, like they're the most rapacious Ayn Rand reading stockbroker in the world. Still gives his little kid shit if she won't share on the place. True, right? Like, like we all know in our hearts that greed is not good. <laughs> you know. It's also not Burrito Optimal. Like, a yeah. bunch of people with shitty math convinced us it was Burrito Optimal. And so for a while, like, some people were able to convince themselves that Burrito Optimal was the same as good. But it's <laughs> not good. No, no. In no sense. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so so going back, keeping up on unauthorized bread then, I guess. So, like, because, and I think I, I think I may have tweeted about this at some point, but, like, like how much was Juicero an inspiration for the unauthorized bread. Well, it wasn't just Juicero. It was, you know, it was a whole bunch of, of companies um, that, you know, that entered the market with these strategies. So I really have to give you a little background, kind of this is where my tech activism side comes in. So that in the uh, one of the uh, elements of intellectual property regime is that they tend to limit the property rights of natural persons mm-hmm. by expanding the property rights of corporations. Yeah. Uh, and, and and of wealthy individuals, but but mostly of corporations. You know, the, the book that you own is yours, and it's yours to buy and sell and hold and loan and whatever. But once it becomes an ebook, it's subject to a, a vastly expanded intellectual property regime, and it can be licensed to you rather than sold. And those license terms then end up limiting what you can do with the book in a way that makes it really clear that the book is not your fault. Right, that you are at best the tenant of the book. And uh, the long-run trend towards the expansion of intellectual property regimes is also part of the long-run trend towards inequality, oligarchy, and monopoly. And, you know, they all kind of kick off around the same time, you know, the mid-70s, uh, as, uh, as uh, you know, Keynesian um, regime starts to founder, there's an economic crisis, the oil shock, and uh, the fortunes of the super-rich have grown enough to the wars that they're also able to pursue big political projects. They get Robert Bork being put up for the Supreme Court mm-hmm. and, you know, lots of money being put into think tanks to the real kind of revitalization of the charter movement, which started off the charter school movement, which started off as a way to uh, finance Brown v. Board of Ed so that you could have publicly funded schools that black kids couldn't go to by making the private schools that got public vouchers uh, yeah. that, you know, where the private owners could make their own choices and so on. And um, one... Uh, one of the, the things that arose from this is the idea that um, firms should be able to use some form of legal protection to corral their customers into arranging their affairs to benefit the firm shareholders. And that regime really hit the stride in the late 90s, 1998, when Bill Clinton signed into law the Digital Learning Copyright Act, the DMCA. In Section 1201 of the DMCA, makes it a felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a five hundred thousand dollar fine to bypass a copyright restriction any kind of copyright access, even if you're not violating copyright. And that sounds very complicated and technical, but like it, you'll understand immediately what this is about when I tell you that it would stop people from manufacturing de-regionalized DVD tracks. So you know you could be if you bought a DVD in America, you could watch it in America. If you bought it in India, you could watch it in India, but if you took that Indian DVD back to America it wouldn't play on the DVD. And the thing is, it's not technically hard to make a DVD player that can play that DVD, nor would it be a copyright. Because walking into a store in Mumbai and buying a license
show and putting it on your television is the literal opposite of a copyright. <laughs> Paying the rights holder the asking price to enjoy it in the customary way is in no conceivable universe a form of copyright. And so in order to enforce this, this price segmentation strategy that was part of that kind of globalism, the um, legal regime was enacted that just made it a felony to make the device that could bypass the copyright access control. And then it didn't matter if you infringed copyright because the access control didn't just stop you from infringing copyright, it stopped you from doing a range of activities, including ones with no access to copyright law, that were nevertheless disfavored by the shareholders of the company. And so they were able to, to effectively create a regime of private law where what they said went. You know, you can call it like felony contempt of business law. And then over the years, the kinds of devices that could be subjected to this kind of, of restriction grew because any device that has software in it has a copyrighted source. So once you add software to an auto part, you know, an engine part, it becomes a felony to make a, a compatible engine part that can plug into your car engine so long as that original part is designed so that it has a copyright access control that is used by the engine to verify that it's an original part from the original manufacturer and the third part. Apple went even further. They designed the screens on the new iPhone 10 so that if you take a donor screen from a broken iPhone and put it on an, on an iPhone that has a broken screen, so an Apple part on an Apple phone, Still won't work. Jesus Christ. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Oh. oh, yeah. So this is the dead hand of the manufacturer laying on your property, getting ready to, like, punch you in the teeth if it thinks that you have the temerity to use your property to benefit you and not benefit the shareholders. I, and, I, sorry, go ahead. I, I just really like, like, this idea that uh, we have efficient markets and a, a global system, but we also have to enact laws to make sure that those efficient uh-huh. systems operate in the way that's best for us. like Right, well, but you know, in some sense, so like, I appreciate the irony there. I also think that that's a dangerous line because it implies that there is a market that is separate from law. And there just isn't, right? Like, no. nobody writes their yeah. features of law. No, but it's, you know? it's the story right. that they tell of like, oh, we have sure. to have this globalist yeah. system because it's way more efficient and we can... It's like it's better for everybody if we do it this way. If we can ship our labor out somewhere else and outsource these things, right? And, but then as soon as somebody yeah, else yeah, tries to take the same advantage that they are, it's like whoa, 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 whoa. That's for oh, us sure. to do efficiently. And they have a highly specialized definition of regulation, right? When where we create a regulation that prohibits bypass and access control, that is just part of the natural feature of the market. Yeah. When we create a regulation that prohibits companies from poisoning the people who live near their factory. That is an intervention. And it's red tape. And, yeah, it's red tape. And, you know, like, there's just, there's, there's, there's that, that Winston Churchill joke, you know, um, uh, Madam, we've already determined that. Now we're just haggling about the price. Mm. You know, do you know this? He was at dinner mm. and he asked the woman next to him, it's a terrible story. I'm like, would you sleep with me for a pound? And she says, no. What about, uh, would you, would you, how much did you, I forget how the joke goes. How much money did your husband have when you married him? 10 million pounds. Would you sleep with me for a pound? No. What kind of woman do you think I am? Uh, Madam, we've already established that. that. Now we're just arguing about the price. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's more or less. You know. Yeah. So, like, when we say, like, should markets have regulation or not? We've already established that the markets have regulation. I was just arguing about which one. <laughs> right. Yes. You know? and, the, and those and those regulations if, tend to also correlate to who has the most military bases abroad. 
sure. And, yeah. yeah, and and like and, and just you know another way of saying that that uh, you know power uh, is exerted over the legislative process, and the legislation reflects power imbalances, and then can also just reify and amplify them. So anyway, you know once we had this system, we incentivized firms to make devices that have like a one molecule thick layer of copyright protection around them, just enough to trigger legal protection. Should anyone have the temerity to make a device that uh, unlocks some latent feature in the device or allows the user that device to get more value out of it? And so now we see things like Juice Arrow, which was a juicer that would only juice author- authorized fruit, but also the iPhone, right, which will only run apps that come from Apple. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I, at the, about 10 years ago, I wrote an essay for The Guardian called If iPhones Were Dishwashers that was a letter from a Steve Jobs figure explaining to uh, owners of um, his fancy dishwasher that more people were killed by foodborne illness than any other cause in human history. And you cannot expect them to make an effective, safe product if you insist on putting grandma's china in your dishwasher. And that is why you have to only buy the dishes that we sell once you have this dishwasher. And of, <laughs> of course. course, they're territorially licensed. So if you move from one part of the world to the other, they become a pirate dish and the dishwasher will work with them anymore. You just have to buy a new ones. Because that's about honoring and rewarding the intellectual property of the people who worked hard to design those issues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so on and so on and so on. A pirate and, uh, Yeah, yeah. And Apple users, being uh, largely of the view that they are members of their ethnic minority, were outraged by this and said, you know, this is, a, this is ridiculous. Steve Jobs only wants what's best for us. Haven't you seen this turtleneck? And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, that idea never, like that, that's called consciousness. You know, the, this idea that, like, you know, I'm on their side, therefore they're on my side, uh, never really left me. And, you know, lots of firms have tried, thankfully, unsuccessfully to create that kind of mystique. Tesla might be an exception. You know, like, Elon Musk is every bit the grifter that Steve Jobs was. I think Theranos um, is doing great. Theranos, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, you have these miniature cultural personalities. What you didn't get was, like, this. Uh, and, you know, they're all, like, grounded in WeWork capital flow. But, yeah. but you know, or, or in uh, rather soft bank capital flow. But, you know, like, the, the, nothing like the Steve Jobs being cult. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, 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 the Musk cult is pretty close in as much as many of the things that he's credited with inventing are just things he bought. Like, he bought oh, yeah. Tesla yeah. from its inventors and bought the right to call himself the inventor of the founder of Tesla. <laughs> and in the contract, they're not allowed to call themselves the founders of Tesla. Oh, um, that's awesome. I was talking to someone who's an automotive reporter who was forced to publish a correction because they published a denunciation of the company by a former chief engineer. And um, they were contacted by a uh, Tesla representative saying Elon is the chief engineer. Uh, even though he does no engineering, he is the chief engineer. And that guy said it was like chief, like, like like chief practical engineer or something or you know like second banana to the to, to, to Iron Man or you know like I don't know but but you know this this that kind of cult of personality yeah. right like the yeah. the kind of Jim Jones great cult <laughs> uh, are thankfully fewer and farther between because the thing about about Musk is that it's not just his employees who buy the hype it's his customers and the friends yeah, who yeah. buy the hype we get, we get that with uh, Jeff Bezos as well I think. Yeah, Jeff Bezos, but he's—I think he is subject to much more disapprobation yeah. than yes. than uh, than Musk. I think he's a uh, his his mixed bag nature 
is on, is much more in evidence. And you know, Bezos actually, I think, have more Bitcoin than, than us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the things Bezos has done, like I think that Amazon Cloud was a legitimately genius innovation. Mm-hmm. It really was. Yeah. And and the way that they built it and this idea that they would build a service that they would force their own internal production teams to use, so that you know this kind of dog foodism was, um, you know, today it's, it's pretty commonplace, but then it was pretty transformative, and it did result in a an amazing uh, secondary line of work that I don't think Bezos actually signed on. I think it was happy serendipity, um, and you know, some of their supply chain innovations are pretty impressive too. And then you know, in that in that science fictional mode of you know, can you take a thing that exists in the world and imagine it in a in a radically different economic and social context, you know, if we could have a people's republic of Amazon that was a worker-owned cooperative that used robots for all the jobs that are currently, you know, horrendous for people, mm-hmm. um, you know, the kind of logistical achievement that they've made is is genuinely impressive. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's horrifying when you hear what goes on in those warehouses. Uh, sure, but but it could with just like a relatively Speaking. small tweaks be a fantastic place to work. Yeah. Well, and especially like step one, just like replace those humans with robots, right? Like, you know, back to automation is no threat. Automation just brings up air to work on lunch. Right, right. You know, uh, like let's automate those terrible jobs and then like then figure out how to automate things like, you know, filling sandbags and just keep working our way up the food chain <laughs> until humans are directing robots that are, you know, putting up fires and treating diseases and, and, you know, getting rid of invasive species and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, and, and healing each other and helping each other get through the massive collective trauma of, like, sure. millions of the yeah. Delta flooding and, you know, like, the damage is, is, the damage is massive and lasts for decades. Like, there's no shortage. And living through that camaraderie as well, like, experiencing the camaraderie of, of doing meaningful work and of, and of, at some point, reaching a tipping point where you realize that as bad as it is, that you can, you, you've got it under control, that it, will, it might get worse, but it will never exceed your control. And, and to become the first generation in the century that hasn't feared the future, you know, even as the chaos is raging around you to understand that you turn the tide on it. I mean, that is a, like, you know, that, that would be a, a profoundly wonderful silver lining to an otherwise absolutely ghastly future that we have on our on our horizon yeah okay uh, cool i think that's that does it for me on uh, on kind of the unauthorized bread section um yeah also i want to say that the superman story model minority yeah. is also a story where uh, the good guys win right it's a story in which like solidarity among people who are um facing oppression is what just turns the tide in their favor and not a white savior uh, literally swooping in and punching racism until it stops. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. I guess maybe I just wasn't think, like seeing how far it goes because it it felt like model minority ended and and there was still like protests, but they hadn't they hadn't achieved a whole lot. Like, well, they achieved something, and you know, um, protest is uh, is it, you know that kind of fight is not the kind of fight you win; it's the kind of fight you fight. <laughs> Fair, yeah. Right? You know, this, that was the dedication of that book. I was dedicated to my parents who were, you know, radical activists. And I think that's, that's a lesson I learned. There are some fights you win and some fights you fight. 
and never stop. Right. It's yeah. the, the act of fighting and the way that we fight is what's important. Yeah. And that's the best you can hope for is a holding action. Yeah. Yeah, because it's just it's just you're you're just there surviving. It's never going to be over. Yeah. Um, okay. So my so I, my question about radicalized, like the novel, like the short story for radicalized, is I was reading and I was like, this why is this not happened? Like what this seems <laughs> like like I was like why why is this a fiction story? Like I'm amazed that this didn't like this this particular configuration didn't coalesce in reality and spill out at some point. Like what? Why? Why do you think you got to write a fiction story about it and it didn't just happen? It seems like happen. you know it's an interesting question. It seems and like it should. It's one of those things that once it occurs to you, it it's hard to understand why it doesn't happen. I mean, you know, a grief white man in America shoots the shit out of me. <laughs> you know, former intimate partners and brown people at law mostly, but you know that they are they are uh, armed and considered dangerous. And don't take it easy when they're thwarted. And so how is it that they are so meek about uh, exploitation and, and real suffering that the people that they love face? I, one of the constant inspirations for this was I heard a radio series on sickle cell anemia. It's obviously not a thing that a lot of white dudes have to contend with, but that a lot of African-American parents have to watch their kids suffer through, in part because of systemic neglect and therapeutic interventions for it. And it is a an incredibly painful, debilitating disease, and in particular, it's like children very hard. And I thought, you know, if that were me, I'd be beside But I would be beside myself. I get angry when kids are mean to my kid on the playground, mm-hmm. or a teacher says something sarcastic in the classroom that they take the wrong way. Like, I don't know how I would ever rest. And when you think about that, or you think about parents who hear from their children about racial abuse, and other forms of abuse that they experience in school. And the unbelievable forbearance of African-American parents in not doing what I think many people who have grown up with more privilege and with less reason to fear the system would do in that event, to kind of go in, if not literally, then metaphorically with your gun blazing, you know, snorting like Yosemite Sam and demanding to speak to a manager. You know, this is a... This is a, a like it's, it is an amazing thing, and so when I flipped that on the head and started to think about entitled white men with lots of guns and how they would manage it, it the story kind of wrote itself, and I don't quite understand why it hasn't happened. And I guess part of the answer is back to what we're talking about: people are probably better than we think. Um, and also, shit flows downhill, right? I mean, when we look at the kinds of violence enacted by angry white men. Sometimes it's enacted at their coworkers, rarely enacted on their bosses. Right. Often enacted against their former intimate partners who tend to have less social power than men. Women tend to have less social power than men. Or on racialized people. And so it may just be, uh, like the foundational cowardice of privilege that keeps it from, from attacking, from punching up and makes it touch down. Um, you know, the, there's a really good book by John Hodgman that came out this year called Medallion Status, which is a book about how he became a mid-left TV celebrity, just famous enough that he was on The Daily Show on the East Coast, and he was on a sitcom on the West Coast, and he flew back and forth on Delta like every week from New York to L.A., and he eventually like attained, you know, bronze medallion, and then silver medallion, and then gold medallion, and then platinum medallion, 
and then ultra platinum triples the luck of the And one of the things about each level that you attain is that they, until you attain it, you cannot see the next level. Mm-hmm. And then once you attain it, literally, like at the end of the road that you're sitting on, the end of the aisle that you're sitting in the plane, or beyond the door to the lounge that you're given access to at the airport, is a portal to a world of more, uh, more, uh, privilege. And if you're telling yourself the story that the reason I have snuggled in my comfortable seat eating warm nuts and drinking champagne while people who look like they're on a Polish World War II breadline are trudging past me to go to cattle farm is because I did something special and I deserve it, then it is almost impossible to then say, people sitting ahead of me with better warm nuts and better champagne deserve that too, which means that I am less good than they are. Mm-hmm. Right? So it, it is in privilege that you find a reflexive ordering of people into hierarchies because to deny the hierarchy is to deny your own place. And so the consequence that that leads you to is the belief that people who sit higher on the hierarchy must be your social better. Otherwise, you are the social better of the person who sits below. And this is the fetishization of the middle class then. Sure. Yeah. yeah. That uh, temporary embarrassment. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, of course. Um, and, and so maybe angry white men can find it in their heart to blame people lower down the pyramid than themselves. But when they contemplate people further up the pyramid and their potential culpability and their immiseration, they are unable to resolve the cognitive dissonance that would be required to blame those people higher up without at the same time puncturing their own justification for their own purpose. And this is the psychological antecedent to eco-fascism. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a Corey Robin wrote this book called the, the Reactionary Mind that the history of white men's thought from the French Revolution of say, and did a second edition for Trump. And the, <laughs> the question that he seeks to answer is, um, what is it that unites the right? Right. You have like dominionists who want to enact a kind of you know LARP of uh, the Handmaid's Tale, and you have imperialists who want to impose their will on on other nations, and you have Libertarians who want bosses to have absolute authority over the workers who work for them, and you have white supremacists, uh, or you know, in India you have Hindu supremacists. And what is it that unites all of these groups uh, with these seemingly irreconcilable beliefs that allows us to conceive of them as a unitary bloc called the right? And what unites them all in Robin's view is that they all conceive of humanity as being naturally arrayed in hierarchy. They view liberal projects as projects or leftist projects as projects to subvert the hierarchy to its detriment, to take people who don't belong on an upper echelon of the pyramid and move them there through state intervention, you know, affirmative action, other other programs like that. They disagree about who belongs at the top of the pyramid, right? But they all That's agree right. that there isn't. Yeah. And, you know, the, the differences within the right are actually really easy to understand once you realize that they are that they agree on the pyramid they disagree about who goes where. You know, we've already settled about that. Now we're just tackling on the price. You know, um, and 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 uh, you know, it also explains the um, difference between leftism, liberalism, and the right, which is you know, liberalism is mostly about asserting mobility within the pyramid, and leftism is largely about dismantling. Right. Yeah. 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 So any. Yeah. So I think that's. I think it's very salient. I think it's like very important to understand, like for people who are trying to build like left solidarity, it's like, yeah, we're like that's what makes it revolutionary is the the upsetting of the apple cart 
the, the tearing yeah. down of the pyramid. Um, you know, and like why you like you can't and and that and that and now with this technological era we're in, we are actually running the risk of like this like building to a moment of literal where like people could with technology enact this pyramid. There could be a bifurcation of the human species through technology. Uh, sure. In a terrifying, yeah. <laughs> like in a James, terrifying, horrible way. Yeah, James Hughes, Jim Hughes wrote this book called Citizen Cyborg that proposes a humanist transhuman agenda where he's like, you know, if we do believe that we're going to have fundamental breakthroughs that, for example, allow us to extend lifespan through genetic manipulation, um, then we could reify class differences in our germ class, right? The people who can afford to engineer out known diseases from their um, reproductive cells uh, and engineer babies that uh, are at a lower risk of, say, heart disease and cancer and, you know, other, other uh, illnesses with genetic components might just become a completely different species, right? They, they'd like not, not um, you know, continue to be formally cross-fertile, but not cross-fertile in the sense that, like, they, they're such intensive sort of mating that you would just never see a, a product of this cross-fertility in the same way that, like, if you have a bird that sings a song to attract a mate and it's just it's geographically isolated and develops a new song, you know, technically... The, the sperm and the egg can still fertilize one another, but because the song is no longer legible to a potential mate, it just will never happen, and they become effectively two different species, even though they're, they're genetically similar enough to the offspring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Super. Creepy. Creepy huh. as fuck. <laughs> so, <clears throat> is, there, is there a popular economic assumption about the future that you think uh, is probably the most wrong? Like, if I, if I were to take one... I would say like the mass unemployment that we see in the future is probably something that I don't think will actually happen. Um, yeah, I agree, but not, as, I, as I've alluded to before, not because of this kind of uh, deterministic idea that, uh, you know, with uh, that, like every technological revolution just creates a bunch of new jobs. You know, we put, we put uh, coal miners out of work because we have robot coal miners, but then we create a new set of jobs for people to fix robotic coal miners. I don't think that's what's going to do it. As I say, I think that it's going to be primarily about mobilizing labor and service and climate remediation. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I would say that um, the uh, what I find very interesting in futuristic tales, how often when we talk about money, it's, it's characterized as a credit, right? Which implies a ledger, right? Which implies like a double entry bookkeeping way of thinking about about capital flows and there's really like, when, when we talk about um, economics and capital flows, we can view them through two lenses that are a bit like Newtonian lenses and quantum lenses, right? That they're like, they're two different explanations for the same phenomenon that operate at different scales and that have good predictive power at times, but are also in some ways uh, irreconcilable with them. And the economic lens is one that is like uh, singularly focused, especially in the neoliberal era singularly focused on uh, public debt, austerity, and inflation. And whose account of public spending is that public spending is the outflow of taxation, mm-hmm. that governments tax and then spend. And then you have the accounting way of it, which is implied by the credit, right? Um, in which you acknowledge the incontrovertible truth that there is no money to pay in taxes until the government is spent, right? Yep. That, like, if, if, if your bill says, you know, exclusive remit of the uh, Bank of Canada, anyone caught making these on their own 
will be sent to the gallows, then you can be pretty sure that the vast majority of bills in circulation were sent into existence by the government. And so taxation is not how the government makes a big pile of money that it spends on stuff any more than loans are what banks do with their deposits. Um, (laughs) Taxation is a way of annihilating money to limit the undesirable effect of an oversupply of capital in the market, namely a concentration of political power into a small number of hands and inflation. And the accounting account of this, which, you know, was called chartalism and then neo-chartalism is now called body monetary theory, contrasted with economics has leads to a completely different set of, of conclusions, right? It explains, for example, why austerity uh, produces uh, economic contraction. Mm-hmm. Because all of the money in circulation is money that the government spent but didn't tax back. If the government only spends what it taxes back, then there's no money left, right? So this is why you experience massive contraction when government stops spending, is all of the dollars that are not taxed are the dollars that we have. Well, all of the dollars we have are dollars that haven't been taxed, that have been deficit spent. Yeah. And with no deficits, there's no dollars left for us to have to spend to do stuff with. So, you know, that's, that's one of the outflows. The implications of, the, of that are things like any resource that the private sector is not using, the public sector can commandeer by printing money to procure it, and it will be non-inflationary. Uh, you know, there won't be a crowding out. There's unemployed people the government can put them to work, right? There's no one's trying to bid on their labor. There won't be inflation. And then also that inflation can be bought with taxation and can be bought with a bunch of other things. You know, and the explanatory power of, of modern monetary theory is also to explain how it is that Japan is not experiencing the economic downturn that would be predicted by the kinds of uh, monetary policy that they pursue, right? It, 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 it explains many of the contemporary conundrums of, of um, neoclassical economics. And, and it has this interesting, you know, to go back to my kind of Marxist politics, it has this interesting class balance in that accounting is a foundationally blue-collar profession and economics is a white-collar and so the people who are at the coal face adding up the numbers and putting them in ledgers, we don't listen to. The people who sit in corporate boardrooms and ivory towers and theorize about what's happening to the numbers in the ledgers get to uh, define our reality. And so, you know, if we are going to talk about a future full credit, credit endeavor, right, of ledgers, then we should talk about that future through an accounting lens and not an economist lens, or a modern monetary theory lens and not a not a neoclassical. And yeah. that I don't see anywhere in, in um, the uh, account of how all this stuff works. Who would have thought in the end it was actually like counting money and things that would teach us the yeah. economy? I, I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. It's, right. it's, well, it's, all, it's cuneiform all the way down. Yeah. It's just tracking <laughs> how, much, uh, how much barley you're going to owe us the next harvest. It's not so much circular, it's just it has no loose ends. Uh, okay. Anyway, sorry, a bad joke. Okay, so we've been we've, we've been taking up a lot of your time. Thank you so much. I just have a couple uh, another quick question here. Um, so what's inspi- like? What inspires you? Like what if what if like what are what should where's the what's the what's the reading supplement for this podcast? You know, like people want to go like what's what's gotten your what's got you excited? So, what's got you going? In both technology and in economics. I find my greatest dividend in really digging into stuff that's profoundly boring but important 
and then figuring out how to make stories out of it, right? It's like the real kind of unique selling proposition for me as a writer. Um, and so, you know, I spent a lot of time in the weeds of tech policy, particularly copyright and patent, um, some of the innovation research that's been done. Uh, today, if you really wanted to, like, spend a lot of time thinking about interesting, weird things happening with the Internet, you could do worse than to really delve into intermediary liability, particularly as a scholar at Stanford, called Daphne Keller, who's kind of leading theorist of this stuff. Um, right now, there's a lot of good work being done on competition. Tim Wu, fellow Torontonian, who's in the state, uh, did a great little pamphlet from, from Columbia University called The First Signa that I strongly recommend. Um, I like, uh, let's see, what else? In terms of economics, I'm, I'm really digging the Modern Monetary Theory podcast and also the, uh, the, uh, uh, Stephanie Council lectures, which is kind of the progenitor of She's Bernie Sanders' advisor. Yeah, she's really um, great. She's amazing. Yeah. She's, she's, and she's a really interesting speaker. There's a series, in terms of, uh, climate and technology, there's a series called the Without the Hot Air series, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air, Sustainable Materials Without the Hot Air, Sustainable Transit Without the Hot Air, uh, and they've done a drug policy one that's a little off-brand, but also equally brilliant. And they're not popular science books, they're popular engineering books. Yeah. So they treat all these issues as engineering tasks, and they're like, let's just, let's just push this as an engineering problem and just parameterize it, right? Like, yeah. how many photons strike the Earth every day? Because that's the most solar you're ever going to get, right? So if you're going to if you're going to do renewables, assuming like a perfect battery, assuming everything, how much solar do you have, and how much of the Earth did you have to cover in solar panels to get enough to meet our energy needs? Turns out not to be a big number, right? Um, but then you can do things like what is the theoretical maximum efficiency of a cylinder in, in uh, air, right? Which is like the most efficient in airplanes. Mm. Okay, what's the energy budget for that? How many airplanes do you want to put in the sky, right? Like now it's up to you. You're basically mentally twiddling sliders uh, in a giant game of sim planet where the parameters actually correspond to hard parameters that are uh, known, knowable, and have a, a high, high degree of reliability. Like, what is the total tidal stress exerted on the Earth by the moon? Right? You will never get more than that out of tidal power. Right. Period. Well, and, and, you, and you wouldn't want to get it all because right? then you'd really be fucking yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, sure. And then there's stuff like, the sustainable materials book is equally brilliant. It turns out that the uh, carbon footprint of two materials, aluminum and concrete, uh, are, is so large that all other material consumption is around it. And so, basically, if our, mater- if our material consumption and processing of everything that's not concrete and aluminum went to zero, we would still have a climate crisis. And we would make no, almost no difference yeah. in the climate crisis. Whereas, any major changes to both of those, and so it's a case study in these two materials, how they're produced, what they're used for, what new technologies we could have for them, where their carbon footprint comes from, and so on. So this kind of very parameterized technical discussion as a way of thinking about what is and isn't possible in the future is really important. Um, I've done a series, if someone wants to read more of this nonfiction stuff, I've done a series of articles with the Electronic Frontier Foundation on a subject called... Um, Adversarial interoperability, term coined by my colleague Seth Schoen. And it, adversarial interoperability is when you make a new product that plugs into an existing one against the wishes of the people who made that existing. So third party printer ink, third party car parts. You know, it's how yes. Frank Sonic became a billionaire, right? Making third party car parts. Um, and, uh, it used to be a, a, 
uh, like a, a rock bottom feature of technology that every technology giant was felled by someone who made something that plugged into their product and gradually took over their product ecosystem and then, then eventually squeezed their product out. And it's how technology remained dynamic and competitive for a long time. And it was upended by a series of reforms that were, you know, kind of co-terminal with a bunch of other oligarchic reforms, you know, copyright law, patent law, uh, new tortious interference theories, a bunch of other stuff. And as well as, like, taking the brakes off mergers and acquisitions and vertical market corners that have basically made it impossible to topple these existing giants. And, you know, I'm all for breaking up the big tech giants. I'm all for putting limits on their conduct and so on. But I think that unless and until we have adversarial interoperability, their dominance will be almost unshaken. Yeah. yeah. So uh, turning then to, to fiction, is there other, um, other authors that, that you think, oh, this is, this is a really good way of thinking about something or a, a fantastic idea people that they've come up with? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I would read Annalie Newitz's Autonomous, her first book, really, really good in terms of thinking through some of these, like, oligarchic questions. It's a book about whether having uh, robots that are, like, uh, if not sentient, like, largely indistinguishable from sentience, that mm-hmm. we're allowed to uh, own as property and sexually and physically abuse and work without regard to their own internal uh, ideals, would uh, make us more amenable to reestablishing human slavery. Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, the, uh, an yeah, argument that, that's often raised by vegetarians and animal rights activists that um, that cruelty flows uphill. You know, that, that like, the cruelty that we countenance uh, among the least of us starts to slowly influence our interpersonal relationships until it completely overtakes all of our interpersonal relationships. And cruelty just becomes a, uh, a feature of all of our interpersonal relationships. And that's, that, I think, um, a good, uh, a good title. Uh, the most recent, uh, Carl Schrader book, uh, Feeling World. Yeah. It's a really excellent book about, um, uh, the power of networks to organize resistance movements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, our, people are, hmm? our last episode, uh, I think it's the last episode. Was, is, about that? was yeah, a conversation with Carl. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. I've yeah. Carl since I was like 16. <laughs> oh, that's um, incredible. Yeah. The next William Gibson book, The Agency, which is out next month. Oh my god, is it good? Holy shit, is it good? I love uh, I love the peripheral. Yeah, it's yeah. the sequel to the peripheral. Awesome. And that, then that world is there's um, there's a, a couple of older Bruce Sterling novels that I strongly recommend, uh, particularly Book Distraction, uh, which is one of the best political novels I've ever read. It's a novel about election campaigns. Uh, and it, it's superb. Also, his nonfiction book, um, Shaping Things, which is about uh, kind of intelligent materials. And how they would alter uh, climate uh, considerations and material wealth and abundance. And I stole a lot of my best ideas from that. <laughs> um, he's 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 been he's been drawn upon by all the greats, I think. Yeah, Rooster. I, I love him. He's my daughter's yeah. awesome. Oh wow, he's, he's amazing. Um, I don't know. That's probably a good trio right there. Sure, Quadrupolo. Four pack. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been this has been really fantastic. Thanks so much for being. Here. All right, guys. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm off to go see the probably disappointing final show. Oh, that's man. that's me tomorrow. So, oh, gee. All right. Um, if people wanted to I, to follow along with your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, I'm Doctor O on Twitter. You can read boymorning.net. My personal website is craphounds.com. Um, and you know, wherever books are sold, 
Uh, I got about 20 of them. Awesome. And more on the way. So, All right. Yeah, there you go. That's great. Well, okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank and, you. Uh, nice talking to you guys. Yeah, it's really you. great. And, uh, all the okay. best. Okay. Bye. 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 Okay. So that was our conversation with Corey Doctorow. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, you can find me, uh, Marshall, on, on Twitter, uh, at EconoBoyd. And I'm Steven Snow. Aha! I'm Steve Steve. Nope. And Android's an ass. Fuck! I just... Uh, I'm Steve Droids on Twitter. And I, my email is stevesteve at androidsandassets.ca. I'm Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L. Uh, at androidsandassets.ca you can also find the show uh, on Instagram and Twitter uh, at uh, assetdroid yeah so damn he was quick just I was blown away like he just yeah, it, it, yeah. Uh, just for sure level of specificity he had that was wild okay thank you so much for listening and I think we've probably used up enough of your time but okay we're off to see Star Wars I guess <laughs> <laughs>